Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Dobry večer and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Stone. Good evening from Prague and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Coleman. And I'm Travis Dow from the History of Alchemy podcast. If you go all the way to episode 34 on our Bohemian podcast, the Battle of White Mountain, we stressed how pivotal the battle was in Czech history. It was basically the battle that decided Bohemia and Moravia's fate for the next 300 years, and that, in turn, started the events that led to the Thirty Years' War. Okay, so Travis, lay some wisdom on us here. How does the Second Defenestration lead to a famous rebellion, then to a battle, and then to the execution that leads to the Thirty Years' War? This episode is jam-packed because there's just so many good stories here, and they're all kind of interwoven. So let me go ahead and tie a bunch of our Bohemian episodes together. Call this episode um, the sort of mortar that makes a lot of your several of your other episodes kind of, um, you know, kind of come together, and and people have a general better understanding of uh, Bohemia, Central Europe, and that sort of thing in the 17th century. So. Let's give you guys a glimpse of life in Prague in the 17th century first. Because of the nature of this episode, I have to say, um, there's probably a couple of things I've said before, but there's no way around that. To, to make all these pieces fit together, I'm going to have to repeat myself a little bit. So uh, for, forgive us for that. But first of all, let me paint you a picture, because this is something we don't really think about much these days. But in the early modern period, and medieval days, um, it, things were kind of different for certain professions. One of these was an executioner. And the executioners in Central Europe, Prague, Bohemia, Germany, um, there's a lot of similarities here, which is um, what makes it so interesting. So we're not just talking about Prague. But in Prague, I have specific examples for one specific executioner that, I, that I'd like to share. Executioners in general were very interesting in that time in Europe because they were kind of a, a a cast of their own. You know, no one likes the thought of executioners. Definitely no one wants to meet an executioner under the wrong circumstances. But actually back then, no one wanted to meet an executioner at all. So an executioner did not just execute prisoners. Part of the sentencing could actually be torture. Uh, executioners were trained and taught and experts in torture. Those were the torturers, basically. And you wouldn't just use torture as punishment, although often that was a part of the punishment was torture. But torture could also be um, a means of getting a confession or, you know, just like you guys know from the movies. So um, beyond that, it was also the executioner's job 
to dispose of corpses of suicide victims because they were considered unclean and you didn't want to touch them. Executioners are unclean anyways. In fact, you uh, you wouldn't want to shake the hand of an executioner and an executioner would not offer you his hand because that's that's a kind of a damnation. So it is really interesting. Besides that, they also disposed of dead animals from the streets, uh, killed stray dogs in some towns, and we've talked about this before, where people were suspected that there was a vampire living in the graveyard. Uh, we did a whole episode on that. The executioner was responsible for digging up the grave of the suspected vampire, chopping the body into pieces, and burning it into ashes. And from other episodes, we know that did happen. That belief existed in, in Bohemia. You know, that's right, Travis. Um, you know, Chelikovitsa comes to mind in one of our previous episodes that we did. And Chelikovitsa is a, is a, a small little town here that's just uh, not too, too far away from the city of Prague. And uh, it's been known from archaeological digs that there were vampire graveyards where, as you said, maybe an executioner would have been able to go in and dig up the, the remains um, and either uh, decapitate the, the corpse and then move the head, turn the head um, facing downwards, or put some kind of brick or some sort of metal in their mouth so they couldn't come back uh, and terrorize from the dead. Okay, yeah, we sit look at that as a 21st century person and saying, okay, how crazy that is. But that was one of the many jobs uh, that you gave in your litany there, Travis, of, of the pretty dirty work that an executioner had to do and kind of the solemn lifestyle that they had. Uh, they, uh, as we'll talk more about this episode, uh, an executioner had his own sort of life and his own sort of circle of, of people, friends and family that were sp- specific to an executioner's lifestyle that really didn't, uh, you know, integrate into the rest of society, especially in, in med- medieval times. So uh, they were somewhat isolated as a, as a select group because of their, uh, their occupation. And as we said, that occupation was kind of a, a dirty one. I love that episode. In fact, uh, the Halloween episodes, Chelakovitsa, all that stuff. Um, that's great. Yeah, if, if you guys haven't heard that yet, go go listen to it. Back to the executioner. But the executioner was compensated. So it, it should be said that, that this was a well-paid job and was financially comfortable. Um, the job was considered necessary by everyone, you know, kind of a necessary evil. Uh, so everyone respected the position. It was definitely, you know, a high rank, but in a weird way, because um, while they might have respect in some way, they were kind of unclean. So they went to church like everybody else, but they had to go to a specific church. And even then there was a seat for them kind of around the corner, hidden from view from the other parishioners, because they certainly didn't want to see an executioner in while going to church. Another thing is, you can still see this in Prague today, and I think we've brought this up, is that they could only go to one specific pub, and it is in Old Town, right behind Old Town Square, next to one of the Ambiente uh, Brazilian restaurants, I believe. That pub, Ucatia, I think we've, we've mentioned it. Again, in that pub, you had a table apart from other customers. Even coming in and out of Prague was an ordeal because they can only get into one specific gate in the city, which was the one near the garbage dump. And again, like you wouldn't want to shake his hand because if they touched another person, that person was basically dishonored for life. Now, the, the exception is the social life of an executioner would be with exclusively families of other executioners, like from other districts, from other towns, that sort of thing. 
And one also just didn't become an executioner because no one would want to. Even with the high pay, it's just weird. You just, you're such an outcast. Um, so it's usually hereditary. There's no way out of it. If your father is an executioner, bam, so are you. Therefore, also, the sons and daughters of executioners could only marry other sons, sons of daughters of other executioners. Now, there's a few rare exceptions to the hereditary rule. One such uh, exception is none other than the master executioner, um, basically the most famous executioner of Czech history, and this is Jan Midlarz. He was Old Town's main executioner during Emperor Rudolf II. Also, I feel it necessary to point out that Jan Midlarz means John Miller. Jan Midlarz was, uh, you know, when you say as, as John Miller, it kind of brings him back down to the idea that he was just an average guy. But there really wasn't thing, anything really average about Jan Midlarz. Jan was a man that took to his, his trade craft in, in interesting ways. We'll get through in the, in the rest of the podcast tonight. Uh, but once he became an executioner, he was really at the forefront of some of the biggest changes that were going to happen not only in Bohemia, but also in Europe as a whole on the very dawn of the Thirty Years' War. And I think, you know, Jan Midlarz uh, did a lot of his trade craft in Old Town, Stary Maestro, uh, in Old Town Prague, and uh, underneath the streets. And we talked about this on numerous podcasts about the underground world of torture chambers uh, beneath the feet of modern-day tourists that you really wouldn't think existed if you're just taking in a you know, a beer, uh, you know, coming in from, from America or from other points around the world and, and seeing the beauty of what is today's Prague to understand what the medieval torture chambers were like, that they were right beneath their feet kind of would blow your mind. And Jan Midlarz really uh, conducted a lot of his work underneath the streets. And some of the underground rooms we definitely did talk about, um, that's probably where I brought him up before, was on the Halloween episode, we talked about the torture chambers. This, these were Jan Midlarz's torture chambers, okay? Um, uh, I mentioned all the graffiti down there. It's right underneath the town hall and astronomical clock in Prague. You can go see it uh, on a tour if you go there. That's one of the tours I used to give. But uh, Jan Midlarz um, is an interesting story in and of itself. Uh, he's famous because of who he executed, but, but I don't want to jump ahead right now. Jan Midlarz now was not born into an executioner's family. In fact... Um, he was an educated man who grew up in the town of Hrudim, which, uh, Pete, you've been there before. As a boy, he attended an expensive Latin academy, and after graduating there, he traveled to Prague at the age of 16 to study medicine at Charles University. Now, before he came to Prague, okay, while he's still in Hrudim studying Latin, Midlarz hopelessly fell in love with a distant relative, <clears throat> I should say, named Dorota. They kind of they kept up their long-distance relationship when... Jan Midlarz went to Prague and university. Um, but after a couple of years, something happened. Unfortunately, Dorota was impregnated by another man, Jan Midlarz found out, and quickly married this elderly Hrudim merchant to avoid bringing shame on her family. Okay, Now, the baby was born healthy, but weirdly enough, just a few weeks after it was born, it died. And then a few weeks later, uh, her husband died. So, yeah, so she was arrested for poisoning and then sentenced to death by being buried alive. Uh, Jan Midlarz basically got all this news at once. Uh, he refused to believe that any of the charges against her were true. His theory was basically that she got raped, okay? And then, you know, in, those, in that days and age, it doesn't matter. If you get pregnant, like, you know, you do what you have to do. Uh, Midlarz came up with 
a desperate plan to go rescue her. He went back to his hometown, um, kind of took a break from school, and secretly returned to Hurdim. There, he had a, uh, his plan was pretty devious. So what he did was he became an apprentice to the Hurdim executioner so that he could gain access to the dungeons where Dorota was waiting for her as an executioner, okay? He became an apprentice of an executioner, and therefore he had access to dungeons, so he hoped to help her escape. Now, unfortunately, um, he got her out of her cell, but they kind of got lost in the dungeons, and the plan failed. They were discovered, and Dorota was put back in her cell. Uh, you know, Jan Midlarge was able to kind of play it off like it was a mix-up or something, and, uh, you know, so she was put back in her cell, and he was let go. And unfortunately, her sentence was carried out, so she was actually walled up alive, buried alive, I should say. Okay, hold on, Travis. So, so what you're saying here is that this failed escape attempt allowed uh, Jan Midlarge to actually not be punished for what he was doing, but she actually became walled up alive. It, this sounds very much like a Game of Thrones sort of episode. Uh, this sounds horrific. So th this type of thing really ended up very badly, of course, for her, but... In the sense for Jan Midlarsh, was it life, I would have to think it was life back to normal because you really couldn't leave being an executioner. Once you've made that career decision, that's it, man. That, that's, that's what you're going to be. So I, I guess what you're saying here is that he lost his love of his life in a profession that he was going to be set in for the rest of his life. Not only that, but once you become an apprentice to an executioner, well, you can't just quit because, you know, you're part of a a tainted profession now. So once you're an executioner, you're always an executioner. Even though, you know, he had an unwanted profession and he dropped out of med school and he lost his, you know, long lost love all in a very short time, it wasn't actually all bad for Jan Midlarsh in the long run because, um, because of his medical school experience, he was actually very skilled at the executioner's profession because of his medical training and sort of the knowledge of human anatomy. Eventually, over the years, he was promoted to the most respected executioner of Bohemia, basically the master executioner of Old Town, which is, you know, the imperial uh, capital in Rudolf II's time. So again, the torture chamber is right beneath the town hall there. You know, okay, so so he's he's master executioner of Bohemia. You know, he's kind of recovering from, from his loss of his of his girl. In fact, he later actually met and fell in love with a woman named Bieta, who was the daughter of an executioner of the town Slani. They were married, and she came to live in Prague. Now, Jan and Bieta had several children, and they lived happily for many years. Well, until Bieta's unfortunate suicide. Uh, but, but let me tell you about a couple of other interesting characters in this moment. Now, we've talked about defenestration before. We did not do a whole episode on Jan Jalewski, but Jan Jalewski was the first defenestration. Actually, hold up a second here, Trav. Um, for the listeners that haven't listened to our other podcasts or may not be very familiar with the historical term of defenestration, what defenestration is is the act of trying to kill somebody or succeeding in killing somebody by throwing them out the window. And we've seen that on several occasions in Prague. There's uh, one in, in Newtown where uh, a person was thrown from the window. Their more famous one was the one from Prague Castle where two Catholics were thrown from the, from the window of Prague Castle yet survived. And some say there was actually a third defenestration that happened towards the end of World War II. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves – Defenestration is the act of throwing someone out the window, and this particular act led to the Thirty Years' War. Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, thanks, Pete. Um, yeah, so so the first defenestration was of you know 
like every defenestration of Prague, a pivotal moment. And the second defenestration is no less pivotal. Jan Jasenski, we've mentioned him before. Uh, he's also known as Jan Jasenios, ended up being one of the leaders of the rebellion. But that's but that's jumping ahead. So who Jan Jasenius is and why we've mentioned him before is because he's an interesting character. He Again, he, he falls in line with my History of Alchemy cast, uh, Johannes Kepler, Tycho Brahe, John Dee, Edward Kelly. Well, some of those more than others. Um, but Jan Jasinski was a Protestant doctor. Protestant part is important. Now, why did Jan Jasinski become really famous? Well, first of all, uh, for the history of alchemy point of view, uh, I like him because he was um, the first doctor to do a public autopsy in Central Europe because uh, Catholics wouldn't allow that. And so under Rudolf II's Prague, and I think that's where he came up, we mentioned this in, in uh, Rudolf II's episode, um, that he did the first public autopsy. Um, he actually furthered you know, anatomy and medicine during this time. But he's also famous for another reason, which is more along with uh, the Bohemian show. But yeah, there's 21 crosses on Old Town Square. We've talked about this ad infinitum. The leader of those 21 people who ended up being 21 crosses, which are still there today, was Jan Jasenski. Now, the, the interesting thing about him was he was a rector of Charles University and also a very ta ta talented doctor. Okay, it, like I said, autopsies, anatomy, all that kind of cool stuff. But I mentioned Charles University before in this podcast already. Who else studied there? Jan Midlarsh. Well, that's interesting. Um, in fact, it is said that in 1600, this is about a couple of years before Rudolf II dies, it is said that in 1600, Dr. Yasinski was first visiting executioner Midlarsh's house to arrange for the delivery of corpses. So not only did they study together, um, in fact, it, it's possible that Jan Yasinski was one of Jan Midlarsh's uh, medicine uh, professors at Charles University. Okay, then Midlarsh dropped out, eh, but but at least uh, Jan Jasinski has a hookup for corpses for these anatomy things, right? That's where you get your corpses from the executioner. According to the legend now, according to the story, they became friends. No way to verify that. It makes a good story. Let's go with that. Now, according to a different legend, when uh, one of these visits, Jan Midlarsh was at Jan Jasinski's house to get one of these corpses, one of the swords that Jan Midlarsh had hanging on the wall, you know, executioners got swords hanging on the wall, one of the swords began to kind of swing slowly back and forth. Now, as every executioner knew, that meant the sword was laying its claim to the life of a victim. Jan Midlarsh made a remark about it to the doctor, like, hey, you better be careful, you know, that sword's, you know, marked you. But, of course, being a skeptical scientist, Jan Jasinski only laughed and passed it off as a silly superstition. Maybe he shouldn't have, but, uh, you know, this is, call this some foreshadowing. Well, in any case, 1618 rolls around. Well, we've talked about this before on the, on the Battle of White Mountain uh, episode, so I, I'm going to just fly through this. But basically what happens is second defenestration. Jan Jasinski becomes the leader of the rebellion, and uh, he is nobility, and a lot of the other leaders are nobility. And these, uh, you know, 21 leaders, I guess, are then arrested at the Battle of White Mountain, or captured. And Battle of White Mountain, again, you know, massacre, checks being slaughtered, some thousands of them with just within a couple hours. Uh, it is such a victory for the Austrians that uh, Bohemia became Austrian for the next, well, until 1918, basically, for the next 300 years. Uh, 1618, Second Defenestration, 1620, Battle of White Mountain. Jan Jasinski and his followers are arrested. 
taken to Vienna, and then taken to Prague in those torture chambers that I keep talking about, where Jan Midlarsh works. I hope this is all coming together now. Eh? Yeah? Okay. Nine months pass since the Battle of White Mountain. Now that we have the background, right? So it's not just some random leader of a rebellion and some random executioner. No. This is Jan Jasinski, who is a great doctor and did one of the first public autopsies and furthered our knowledge of anatomy, okay? And we have Jan Midlarsh, who is the most famous executioner of all time. Interestingly, also a Protestant, probably one of Jan Jasinski's friends, and um, definitely a sort of uh, client or supplier. You know, they definitely had a business relationship, but possibly more. Now it is Jan Midlarsh's task to torture Jan Jasinski for the following months, and then execute him and his compadres. Jan Midlarsh spent the night before the execution with the people he's supposed to execute. Now, his job is to torture them, okay? Uh, even up until the last minute. Keep them in pain until they come out. The, the public wants to see them bruised, bleeding, hurt before they die, okay? All pride removed. That's the executioner's job. Tear them down. Jan Midlarsh, well, you know, he just couldn't do that. In fact, um, I've discussed some of these details before, but I think it makes more sense to you now. So um, probably what actually happened is that he just prayed with uh, his victims um, all night until the next morning. Now, the next morning, 5 a.m., they lock all the city gates, they surround the old town square with soldiers. They bring out the 21 prisoners, single file. And here it gets interesting again, because uh, Jan Midlarsh, it was noted by uh, by several chroniclers that that witnessed this, uh, that Jan Midlar showed sympathy in several ways. For one thing, the executioner normally wears a red hood, but in this case, he famously wore a black hood to show mourning. Another thing is that, and sorry, this is pretty gruesome, this is brutal, and I think I've said it before, but if the executioner did not like you, if you were a non, if you created a crime that people did not sympathize with very much, your beheading could be extremely brutal. In fact, beheading was was really reserved for nobility anyways. Um, you, you could be put to death in a very time-consuming matter in front of a lot of people. Uh, let's put it that way. Okay, sorry guys, but, but to give you some concrete examples here, just so you know what I'm talking about and the significance of it, um, there are stories like, like one in, in um, Slovenia that it took two, two days for the guy to die of a beheading. Because, you know, it takes so many blows, the, the executioner would purposefully use a dull sword. So it's more like hacking your head off, which is it's just gross, um, rather than a clean slice. My point is this. On this day, <laughs> 1621, summer solstice, 21st of June, uh, it was noted that he had several razor-sharp swords with him. Um, so again, sympathy, sympathy, sympathy. He killed these guys quick. Well, he would have if it was up to him. In fact, he didn't. Um, now, I've said this before. <laughs> Jan Jasinski, because he was the leader of the group, right? Um, he had his tongue cut out because he was sort of the speaker. And then after his beheading, um, he had his tongue nailed to his head as kind of a reminder, like he's the speaker, bad idea. This is interesting, here's an English chronicler. So this is actually a first, here's a primary source in English describing to us that when Jan Midlarsh beheaded uh, Jan Jasinski, it was the cleanest cut he'd ever seen and the head just went sailing through the air. So swipe. Anyways, the 
other kind of leader leaders had their arms hacked off also because they were the actors, the ones that kill, carried out the orders of Jan Jasinski. And then the top 10 uh, or, or dozen, the top dozen actually, um, of the 27 were beheaded. Travis, the aftermath of the executions in 1621 was something that was supposed to leave a mark for all those who witnessed it and those that weren't there to always remember never go against the emperor especially now that the Austrians controlled all of Bohemia. One of the things that had happened was they left the hanging men in those locations on top of Old Town Tower, or Clock Tower where it is today, and one scaffolding, they had another person hanging um, the, around where the Jan Hus Memorial is placed today in 2015. Now, the heads that were decapitated, they were actually placed into metal cages by Jan Midlarsh himself, and then six of them were put on one of the bridge towers on Charles Bridge, and on the other side of Charles Bridge, the other six resided. And they say that this lasted for 20 years. Of course, these heads had you know, turned into basically skulls, and they were kept there as a reminder not to have an uprising like this ever again. There was only one exception of a head being taken down to be actually uh, placed in, in a private uh, grave, and that was one particular nobleman's wife that requested that, and it took about uh, a year or so to get that done. All the heads were later, 20 years later, taken down at, off, off their cages and were placed in a grave at the Church of Tien, which is on Old Town Square, with their, their skulls, rather, facing their execution site. That's where they remain today. The 27 noblemen crosses, of course, are actually uh, where the scaffolding was in 1621, and that's right next to Old Town Tower. Uh, the other, what is it, 15 people, uh, they weren't beheaded. Um, 14 of them were hanged in the same place in Old Town Square from scaffolds that they had built because they weren't quite as guilty. So the emperor decided that they, they didn't actually, they didn't need to spill the blood. It just, you know, they needed to die. Um, and then the last guy begged for his life. He was just a secretary, just a scribe or something in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the guy said, okay, you know, uh, wrong place at the wrong time. Fine, I'll spare your life. But you wagged your tongue so much begging that he had him nailed to the scaffolds by his tongue and left there. I wish that was the end of the story. This was not really permissible. These were Protestants, but these were Protestant noblemen. You don't just execute noblemen in that fashion. And um, because Catholic Austrians did this, Protestant countries just basically shouted in an uproar. Uh, so we have, you know, Sweden, England, other countries that just thought they could maybe get in on this and take a piece of the pie. So we have, you know, different countries. It's basically like a, a European version of World War I. Um, you know, we get France getting involved in basically all of the, the European powers at that time. This war, it's hard to overstate how bad it was. Um, in simple numbers, 10% of the population of Europe died. And that might sound, oh, well, that's as bad as World War One or something like that. But um, actually in Germany and Bohemia, where all the battles were fought, it's more like 50 to 70 percent. So in some parts of Germany, it's like 30 percent. Uh, Northern Silesia and, and parts close to the border of Czech Republic is more like 70 percent. And then Bohemia as a whole is like 50 percent. That's half the population slaughtered. Why did that happen or how could that happen? The Thirty Years' War was the last mercenary war. It was also the last great uh, religious war in Europe. But it, the last mercenary war is important because mercenaries just fight battle to battle and get paid, and they don't, they're not really loyal. They're loyal to the people that have the gold. 
and they're definitely not loyal to the civilians that they're fighting the battles around. Um, so, you know, if you have some mercenaries from who knows where, and they're being hired by Swedes to fight in Bohemia, or, you know, hired by Italy or Spain or whatever to, to fight in Bohemia, there's just no loyalty there. They don't care. So they would come through, they would steal everything that is worth value or edible or anything and slaughter men, women, and children, rape them as they see fit, whatever, and just move to the next town and fight the next battle. So Central Europe was devastated from this war. So it was, after the, the treaty, um, it was the last, first of all, major religious war, and also the last uh, mercenary war. After this country decided it's probably best to have standing armies that are, first of all, cheaper, loyal, loyaler to your country, and aren't just going to rape and pillage uh, the civilians in the 17th century Europe, you know, which is... Now, again, I wish I could tell you the story was over, but we forgot one little detail here. What about Jan Midlarsh? How, uh, how did he take all this? Well, actually, um, so you don't just execute the biggest Protestant heroes that your country's seen in 200 years and just get away with it scot-free. So while he might have still had um, kept his position and the emperor was fine with him and everything, the people were not. And if he thought he was being shunned before, at least he was respected. That was no longer the case. In fact, uh, Bieta, his, his wife, after a couple of years, she just, she just could not take this anymore. You know, both Jan Midlarsh and and Bieta were just racked with guilt for the rest of their lives. And in fact, in Bieta's case, the rest of her life didn't last that much longer because she took her own life a few years later. Jan Midlarsh was the Old Town executioner until 1632, and then passed along his axe to his son Jan Vaslov. As we said, this profession was kept in the family and passed from their son to son to son. As a side note, Midlarsh's grandson John was an executioner as well, but his fate was a little bit more dire. He was accused of setting fire to Prague in one of the city's worst fire-related tragedies in the late 1680s. He was executed for this arson and on the same scaffolding that he and his forefathers used as their place of employment. So Jan Midlar died on March 14, 1664 in Prague. He lived a very long life for one of the more famous executioners in all of European history. We want to thank you for listening to the Bohemian Podcast this evening. Remember, you can visit bohemican.com for more of an expat experience in the Czech Republic. You can also download our free podcast from iTunes and visit our YouTube channel for more on the Bohemian experience. One other side note, you can also visit the newbohemican.com store for a variety of items that you can get to support the show. Until next time, for Travis Dow, I'm Pete Coleman saying goodnight from Prague. You have been listening to the Bohemian Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Dow. Visit bohemican.com for more information on this episode, other episodes, and much more information about history, traditions, and culture in the Czech Republic. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, and review, and don't forget to rate us. We would love to hear from you. Send comments, ideas, and corrections on our comments page on bohemican.com. Or get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. Tune in to our sister podcast, History of Alchemy, which is also on iTunes or on historyofalchemy.com. Until next time on the Bohemian Podcast, thank you for listening.